This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. I'm happy to welcome you all to one of the first events of the Arab Heritage Month. My name is Nijma Youssef, and I am representing the Arab Student Union, which is responsible for putting this event together. One of the purposes of the Arab Student Union is to um, educate the student body here at Marine about our culture. In order um, is to, um, to educate us about our culture, today's event will feature two guest speakers here to inform us about Middle Eastern culture in order to give us all a better understanding of where the Arab population at Marine originates from. They will speak about the Arab world at large and the problems facing Arab students in schools. Let me take a minute to introduce the credentials of our guest speakers. Mr. Hatem Abudaya is the Executive Director of the Arab American Action Network, a community-based organization working to improve the social, economic, and political conditions of Arab immigrants and Arab Americans in the Chicago metropolitan area. He is also Board Vice President of the Coalition of African, Arab, Asian, European, and Latino Immigrants of Illinois and sits on the advisory board of the National Network for Arab American Communities, as well as on the National Coordinating Committee of the United States Popular Palestinian Conference Network. Mr. Abadeya is the son of Palestinian immigrants and has written extensively on developments in the Middle East. Um, our second guest speaker, Ms. Fatma Baishan, is the president of the Middle East, Studies Student Association at the University of Chicago. She is currently working on her master's degree in Islamic Finance at the Center for Middle Eastern Students and is a 2009 candidate, is an MA 2009 candidate. Um, so without further ado, please join me in welcoming um, Mr. Hatem Abudeya. Thank you, Nijma. And thank you to the Arab Student Union for, for putting on this event. Um, I'm only going to speak for a few minutes. I'm going to talk a little bit about the Arab American Action Network um, and, and then a little bit about the student organizing and activism, um, historic, a little bit of the history of it in Chicago and the U.S., and a little bit about what's happening currently um, that maybe you all from the ASU can can connect to. Uh, and then I'll pass it on to Fatma, who will give a presentation about the Middle East and Arabs in the United States and in Chicago. Um, again, my name is Hatim Abudaya. I'm the executive director of the Arab American Action Network. For those who may have grown up in the city, 63rd Street area specifically, um, the Arab American Action Network's previous incarnation, the original name of the organization um, before the AAAN came into existence in 1995 was the Arab Community Center, Merkaz Jeddah Arabiya. It's on 63rd Street. At that time, when it was formed in the early 70s, all the way up until the early 90s, it was, that was the main port of entry for Arab immigrants in Chicagoland. Um, and as we know that there are between 65 and 70 percent of the Arabs in greater Chicago are Palestinian. Um, it became a, a center of activity and organizing and activism for 
the Palestinian community, other Arab communities, uh, doing a lot of work um, that would be considered anti-intervention work, uh, solidarity work with the Arab world, whether it was Palestine or Iraq or what have you. Um, in the early 90s, we moved um, into uh, an understanding that the community here in Chicago needed institutions that were dealing with local issues as well. Uh, that doesn't mean that we ignore the international issues because we, we believe very strongly that we don't exist in a vacuum here. Our communities, our families were affected every day by what happens in Palestine and in Iraq and in other parts of the Arab world, but that we needed to institutionalize the community-based organizing and activism in Chicago. So we formed the Arab American Action Network and we started by running youth programs which is homework assistance and tutoring for, for elementary school age children and for high school students. We teach English as a second language and citizenship to new immigrants. Actually we're just down the block at on 105th and Roberts Road where we have our classes um, and Fatma actually used to, used to teach English as a second language with us a few years back. Um, we also are involved with uh, the immigrant rights movement in Chicago and in the rest of the country. A couple years back, if you all remember, in 2006 there were massive demonstrations and protests in Chicago and other parts of the city, of the country. Half a million people were downtown protesting and demonstrating for immigrant rights, for the right to, uh, for undocumented immigrants to become, to have a path for legalization and citizenship and all that sort of thing. That's a national movement that the Arab community is very much a part of and the AAAN is, is involved uh, in that movement as well. And, uh, and then we also have our cultural outreach program that, um, that Fatma was working in as an AmeriCorps member and then a, and a full-time staff person with the AAAN a few years back and it's when we first uh, established these these modules and these presentations that we brought to colleges, to faith-based institutions, to other community organizations, to businesses, um, mostly because people in mainstream U.S. society don't know that much about us. They don't know that much about our culture, they don't know that much about our our religion, our history, um, the rich and varied history of the Arab world. And so uh, we felt it was incumbent upon us, a responsibility of ours, to help teach uh, you know, the, the greater U.S. society about the issues that were affecting us. And then uh, before I pass it on to Fatma, I want to talk a little bit about the student movement for a few minutes. And I think it's important for students, especially Moraine Valley students, especially since there's so many Arab students at this school. It's important to understand that you also are part of a tradition and a part of a history in this country. The Arab student unions in the 70s and in the 80s up until the mid-90s were very powerful institutions across the country. Uh, the General Union of Palestinian Students, the Arab Student Unions in the early 90s, uh, the MSAs popped up, the Muslim Student Associations, but in the 70s and 80s up until the mid-90s, those Arab and Palestinian student organizations were some of the strongest in the entire country. Um, had membership, we're talking, you know, 30,000 
Arab and Palestinian members of these student organizations, whether it was the General Union of Palestinian Students or the Arab student unions across the campuses in every state and almost every campus. And it was important at that time, of course, but it's also important today. We're still in a situation as Arabs in this country and as people who come from the Arab world in which uh, we have the responsibility to help educate our fellow students, the professors, the staff, everybody involved with your campus and other campuses across Chicago and across the U.S. on the issues that are affecting us and why those things are happening, put them in a, in a, in a political context and in a political framework, and it's, it's your responsibility to do that, and it's our responsibility to try to help as much as we can in doing that. And one of the things that we can offer as help at the AAAN is that we have contacts and connections with all the other campuses around Chicagoland. We've actually had two kind of summit meetings, so to speak, in which student organizations on all the campuses in Chicago came together. And we're going to continue to have those meetings, and we would love to have Arab Student Union representation at those meetings so that you can come and meet the students that are organizing on the other campuses and start talking about a citywide Arab student movement um, in which you're working together to deal with the issues that affect you as Arab students on campus and then the issues that affect us as a community as a whole. So, you know, I have contacts with the folks at ASU here. I know that you'll probably be passing out a sign-in sheet and so we could be in touch with each other and, uh, and hopefully you could join us at one of those summit meetings coming up probably at the beginning of the year of 2009. Um, thank you very much. I just you know, wanted to give a little bit of an introduction, and now I'm going to introduce Fatima Barishan. As I mentioned earlier, and as uh, Nijma mentioned as well, she's a student at the University of Chicago uh, working on her master's degree and had worked with us a few years back, um, originally from Mississippi, Saudi Arabian woman from Mississippi, which is an interesting story in and of itself. And uh, so please welcome Fatima Barishan. Shukran Hatem, but you stole my thunder. I wanted to give the Saudi redneck spiel myself. Marhaba. Um, <clears throat> okay, so I can't tell you all how happy I am to be here. Um, uh, I love sharing anything about the Arab world and Arab culture because I, I think we are, I think we're fabulous people. Um, I feel like I might be preaching a little bit to the choir because I see the the audience is predominantly Arab, so hopefully there will be more people to come uh, who who might not know as much um, about about our rich history and culture. So I'm a I am a very big. Um, uh, uh, advocate for contextualization. So before we kind of jump into Arab culture, I think we should uh, take a step back and talk a little bit about um, the Middle East and the Arab world and then kind of get down to a granular level of Arab people. Um, <clears throat> so first let's talk a little bit about geography and uh, we'll talk about the Middle East. This is a terminology that a lot of us hear all the time uh, on CNN and Fox and in passing and every day. Um, so Let's talk about the countries that are in the Middle East. The Middle East is really a, uh, the terminology itself is a geopolitical term that's, that was tagged at the beginning of the 20th century. And it's, 
it's used to describe an area that's you know east of Great Britain, um, uh, in between Great Britain and India. Um, and the countries that are in the Middle East are Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, Kuwait, Oman, the United Arab Emirates, Qatar, Yemen, uh, Egypt, which is the only country that's uh, in Africa, uh, Israel, Palestine, Turkey, and Iran. Now, a, a very common uh, misperception is that every single country that's coming out of the Middle East, er, excuse me, every single person that's coming out of the Middle East is Arab. And it's, uh, it's important to note that uh, this is an area that's very rich with several different peoples, cultures, religions, and history. So not every single person coming out of the Middle East is Arab. Um, you have Persians who are from Iran. You have Turks who are from Turkey. Um, uh, and not everyone coming out of the Middle East speaks Arabic, certainly. You have uh, uh, Turkish and Persian also spoken. Um, so this is just a, a little bit of contextualization that, that I wanted to provide. Um, certainly not everyone coming out of the Middle East is Muslim. You have, um, um, this is the major birthplace of the three monotheistic religions. You have Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, and there's a common thread that runs through all of these religions. If you look at Jesus as a proxy, um, you see that Jews believe that Jesus was an ordinary man, and that Christians believe was the son, that Jesus was the Son of God, and that in Islam, uh, Muslims believe that Jesus was a prophet, um, followed by the Prophet Muhammad. Um, so this is also something to kind of keep in mind. And certainly when we talk about Arabs in the Arab world, not every single Arab is, is, is Christian. You have Arab Jews coming out of Morocco and, and, and Yemen. You have Arab Christians and you have certainly Arab Muslims. So let's talk about the Arab world. There are 22 countries that are in the Arab world um, that stretch over North Africa and uh, into Asia as well. So the countries that we talked about earlier that are part of the Middle East, all of the countries that are the Arab countries that are part of the Middle East are also part of the Arab world. So we're excluding Turkey, Iran, and Israel. <clears throat> so what makes a country part of the Arab world um, is that the, the first language spoken uh, is, is Arabic. Now, that's not to say, I mean, if you know anything about history, which obviously you do, all of you are college students, um, you know, colonialism and, uh, and history and people meshing. Um, you have, uh, you know, Berber that's spoken in North Africa. You have French that's spoken in the, spoken in the Levant. You certainly you have English that's still spoken. But the number one language that's spoken is Arabic, um, and it's the national language. So the interesting thing to, to, to keep in mind about the Arab world, which is something that I think is really cool, when you, uh, when you visit the Arab world, every, it's like the United States, really. Uh, when you go to Mississippi, it's very different than Washington, for example, the state of Washington. And so the same thing goes for, for Arab countries and Arab dialects. Um, when you talk to people who are from from the Gulf, there is a, a, a specific Gulf dialect that you hear. When you talk to people from North Africa, Arabs from North Africa, there's a specific North African dialect that you hear. Hassan used to always make fun of me, and he would say that he didn't understand my Arabic. <laughs> and I always used to tell him I didn't understand. It's fine, because I didn't understand his either. <laughs> but but the, one, the one formal language that kind of all binds us is the classical Arabic, right? And this is what you hear in the news and what you hear, you know, um, um, in churches and, and mosques. Um, so that's also something that's really interesting to keep in mind. So Arab is an ethnic term that's used to describe, you know, 300 million 
roughly 300 million people who share common language, culture, and history. Um, so it's interesting to kind of note that it's an ethnic term, not necessarily a, a, a terminology that describes one's race. So I grew up in Mississippi my entire life. Um, I, was, I was born in Charleston, South Carolina, raised in Mississippi. And it was always really difficult for me to um, fill out college applications or whatever applications that you have to fill out when you're growing up. Um, because when it came time to mark my race, I was technically supposed to mark Caucasian, but I never marked that because I never really – I got my undergraduate degree um, in sociology from the University of Massachusetts, and I'm a very, very staunch believer that race is a social construction. Um, so, yes, race kind of talks about your uh, – describes your – <clears throat> excuse me, biological um, and physiological makeup, right? But it's also very much a social construction. So I never felt that I was Caucasian. So I never marked it. I always marked other. And I think a lot of Arabs in the United States feel similar to this. So they do not mark um, Caucasian on, on, on various applications or the U.S. Census, and this kind of skews our numbers in the United States. Does anybody know what the difference between race and ethnicity is? Anybody want to take a shot at it? Come on, y'all. Y'all are college students. Can I just pick on someone? <laughs> Nobody? Nobody wants to try it? Okay, so ethnicity pretty much refers to um, uh, your, your, your country of origin, right, or your area of origin. And if you don't necessarily have a country, it just refer, it ties you back to your geographical region, right? So, um, for example, uh, Kurdish is an ethnicity, right? Because Kurds are very much people. They have very much their own culture. They have their own language. Um, but don't necessarily have a physical country. Um, so race kind of describes your your biological makeup. It describes why you look the way you look. It describes why you know I have darker skin, or and I have curly hair, and I have the shape that I have. This is it ties me back to. Um, um, a geographical region and thereby my body's reaction to that um, um, development. Um, so that's just something to kind of keep in mind when you talk about how many Arabs there are in the United States. Um, because the United, the uh, U.S. Census says that there's roughly uh, 1.3 million uh, Arabs in the United States, whereas AAI went back and redid this estimate and came up with, with double that figure. <clears throat> is everybody still with me? Okay. So when we talk about Arab culture, which is, I think, the best thing about being Arab, um, uh, family, just like, you know, family is the most basic microcosm of any society, right? And it is the most important facet of, of a lot of people's cultures, and so much so for, for Arab culture. And I think uh, this kind of goes back to, if you look at historically the development you know, if you look at predating nation states, the way people, the way uh, Arabs kind of uh, offered each other protection and modes of survival, you, you got all that from your family. And that historically just stayed with us. Um, so family is very important. And it is very much a patriarchal society. There's a, you know, there's a male figure at the top of every kind of um, um, uh, family pyramid. <laughs> and it's a very much a society that respects age. Um, you know, the older that you are, you have a certain amount of uh, uh, respect that's given to you just strictly for the, for the sheer fact that you, you've been around longer. So everybody assumes that you have, you have more wisdom to offer. Um, so that's also something to keep in mind. 
when you talk about Arabic food, Arabic food is absolutely delicious. Uh, I love it. Um, you know, it's. I'm sure everybody here knows it. It's like, you know, the same thing everybody claims, basically. <laughs> These kind of things. But um, the interesting thing about Arabic food is that in, in the Arab world, the staple is pretty much lamb. When you talk about meat, people love lamb. Um, and... Uh, um, uh, something to keep in mind with food. In the Arab world, it's considered very odd to eat alone. You know, you don't, it's, it's very much a communal thing. Like, it's very much a, a familial thing. It's very much, you know, you don't eat by yourself. Breaking bread with people is, considered, is a way to build ties. Um, and when you talk about building ties in, a, in an area that, you know, predating modern, our, our modern conception of the Arab world, when you talk about building ties when there were no nation states, this is the way you did it. You sat down, you, you broke bread together, you talked things out, and you build relationships. Um, something also to keep in mind in the Arab world, oftentimes lunch is the, is the biggest meal of the day, which totally makes sense, right? Like, why do you want to have a heavy meal in the evening? Um, but that's something to, to also to keep in mind. Um, when you talk about Arabic food also, when you go to an Arab's home and they offer you food, I don't care if you just ate Thanksgiving dinner, you take whatever it is that they offer you because it's considered very rude not to eat um, something that somebody offers you because it's as if you're saying that what you have to offer is not good enough for, that, for you to take. So if somebody offers you food, take it. Um, Arabic music, I usually bring a CD. I'm sorry I didn't bring one, but uh, it's very mellifluous. Um, that's just a fancy way of saying sweet sounding. Um, it's, uh, it's very fluty. Um, we have the tabla, uh, which is like a, a miniature drum. Naoud, um, which is our pregnant guitar, in, and uh, we say that this is the mother of the, of the guitar that everybody here knows. Um, and uh, it's it's beautiful. I'm sorry I didn't bring a CD. Um, Arabic clo or clothes in the Arab world. Uh, when you talk about clothes in the Arab world, there's two things I think you have to kind of keep in mind: geography and environment. Um, that's that's kind of one caption, and then um, religion as well. Um, just like in the Arab world where every different country every country is different from one place to the next, so dress varies. What's really cool about the Arab world, and Saudi Arabia is an exception, right? Saudi Arabia is an anomaly because if you go to Saudi Arabia, then women um, all wear the abaya and, and wear the tarha uh, and, and the veil. But if in most other places, um, you go to the, you walk down the street of Casablanca or Beirut or, I mean, pick a city and it's like it's, it would be as if you're walking down the street Michigan Avenue and you see people wearing you know pilgrim's clothes next to people wearing Versace next to people wearing jeans next to people wearing it's very meshed so you have people that are wearing clothes from yesteryear um, mixed in with people for, mixed in with clothes from contemporary dress and it's really cool um, so uh, you know you'll see a girl wearing jeans and, and a veil or you'll see a, a woman who is wearing more traditional maybe completely covered or maybe you'll see a woman who's wearing you know the, the latest fashion um, so it's it's very cool in that sense but oftentimes um, the traditional dress um, is, is something that kind of responds to the environment so since it's very hot um, we're talking loose-fitting clothing. We're talking tunics. 
Um, and also, if you, when you talk about religion there, and it's, it's, it, this is not something I think is, that's endemic to Islam. I think this is a concept throughout the Arab world, a concept of modesty. You know, that you don't necessarily show everybody everything that you have. So clothes are, are, are still stylish, but they are, I think we just timed out. <laughs> tech person, tech person. Um, um, they're still stylish, but they are, but they kind of maintain a level of modesty that um, that is expected of you, right? Um, I think what was I ta- What was right after hospitality? Thank you. <laughs> and then you have hospitality. It's really funny because growing up in Mississippi, um, uh, Arab culture is very similar to Southern culture. I think both are very, very hospitable. Um, and uh, you have this sense of, of warmth. So you have this sense of, of always being invited somewhere, of always being invited into someone's home, and, and, and of course, going and taking the tea and taking the biscuits and taking whatever it is that's offered to you. Um, very, very warm people, very welcoming people. Um, oh, it's the battery, I think. Um, I think. I think we're plugged in. Uh, so uh, I think that out of, if, if when you talk about Arab culture, I think the most important thing to talk about um, is the fact that it is a very hospitable culture. Um, what was the last thing? There we go. Thanks. Hospitality, because we talked about clothes. Thank you so much. Um, so hospitality, we talked about it. Y'all know we're nice people. Okay, Arabs in America. So Arabs started coming to the United States at the turn of the 20th century, so at late of, in late 1800s. And they started coming here basically for the same reason that a lot of other immigrant groups came here. They started coming here to make a better way for themselves. And they started working. That's why there's such a huge um, population in Dearborn because a lot of them started coming here to work in car factories. Um, and so with the Industrial Revolution, there was a boom. Um, and obviously a lot of Arabs came and, and, and tried to... to you know, uh, benefit from that. So that the first wave kind of um, uh, was comprised of Syrian and Lebanese Christians because the idea was first opened up to Syrian and Lebanese Christians through through different schools of uh, Christian schools of thought. Um, and then there's a second wave of of immigrants that came in you know in the 19 between 1940 and 1950 for a lot of different political reasons in the Middle East. Obviously, with the formation of the Israeli statehood in 1948, you see an influx of of Palestinians coming into um, coming into the United States. Um, and from 1970 to present, you have what's interesting is previously you have more Arab Christians coming into. Um, the United States. What's interesting from 1970 to present, you have more uh, Arab Muslims coming into the United States, so there's more of a balance. So it's more of a 60-40 split. Um, so that's something also to keep in mind. Now, in the United States, they are residing in different cities, uh, in L.A., in Atlanta, in Detroit. Chicago has the fifth largest Arab population in the, in the U.S., and New York. Um, Arabs in Chicago, there are roughly 250,000 Arabs in Chicago. They are predominantly Palestinian, predominantly Muslim community. Um, the majority of them reside in Cook County. Um, and uh, that's, that, that's the demographics, the local demographics. Um, and that's pretty much my, my spiel. <laughs> Does anybody have any questions? Yes. 
from living in Mississippi right now, do I still go there? Absolutely. Yeah, I'm going to Mississippi in a couple of weeks. I can't wait. Cause I haven't been home in a while. So, uh, after, so the question was, after 9-11, do I get a negative response? Well, um, I, during 9-11, I, I was in college. I was at the University of Massachusetts. And I remember that night very well. Um, and uh, my brother actually phoned me and said, it was my senior year of college. Um, and my brother phoned me and said, come home. And I was like, no. <laughs> Because it's my final year. If I come home now, I have to go back and start all over next year. Um, and I have a theory about race or ethnicity that says relationships. So I have a theory that uh, race trumps class, but relationships trump race. And what do I mean by that? Like, uh, if you if you are brown like me, um, but have managed to establish relationships with a tight-knit community, because in Mississippi there's not a lot of people, um, um, uh, then it trumps your color, because people begin to see past that, you know. Uh, it takes might take a while, but eventually they do. So, you know, I wasn't in Mississippi, but from what I understand, my family was treated very well, um, and people were very, uh, in fact, m made an effort to you know, check on them and see if anybody was harassing them. My best friend's father called me in Massachusetts and was like, are you okay? Do I need to come up there? You know, um, but I didn't, during 9-11, I didn't have a too bad of an experience. It was, I think, um, when I was growing up, I had a difficult time uh, before. I mean, Mississippi is a very gracious state, and I and I absolutely love it. But it was very difficult growing up in a community where there, everyone was white and black, and I'm literally brown, and everybody thought I was mixed, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with being mixed. But it, I, it was to a point where at a young age, I didn't know anything about ethnicity or race or color. I just wanted to play. Like, I didn't care who I played with. You know what I mean? Um, and so I remember one day this little kid asked me if I was mixed, and I was like, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> and my sister was like, you're not mixed. You're full, you're, you know, full Saudi. Both your parents are Saudi. And I was like, okay, so I guess I'm not. Um, and there were a couple of times when I got called a sand nigger, uh, which was not, and I didn't know what that meant. You know, that's like, okay. <laughs> you know, all right. But for for the most part, my experience was a positive one, but there were, you know, times when I was taken out of my immediate zone, my immediate people who knew me and knew my family, when it was very uncomfortable. But now it's it's all it's fine, like because I don't really care what anybody thinks. But not that anybody does anything now, but yes. I'm going to pass that to Adam. I'll take a shot at that one. Um, I'll give a little context first. I, I don't know how much of, of you, how many of you, or how much of the information prior, prior to the um, elections that you 
got about the relationship between the um, the Obama campaign and some individuals um, in the Arab and Palestinian community and then the community as a whole. Um, I think because the president-elect is from Chicago, because he has a lot of relationships in Chicago that uh, the Republicans, especially the most right-wing elements of the Republican Party um, and those that were, you know, uh, trying to get, um, trying to defeat Obama, um, he has a lot of relationships with folks in the Arab community of Chicago, with some of the, um, what we would consider the black nationalist community in Chicago, um, the progressive community of a number of different nationalities in the Hyde Park area. He was a community organizer, all that sort of thing. So what happened was there were, there were attacks on his relationships and ultimately attacks on him because he had some of those relationships. So now I think we could speak a little bit more freely about those relationships and I think it's important to talk about them. Um, you know, the president-elect visited our organization a number of times. Um, he came because we have a youth program. It's a leadership development program for high school kids um, to help prepare them for college, prepare them for life uh, after college and all that sort of thing. He was a state senator down in, in, in Springfield. Um, because he was from Hyde Park and because people associated with our organization knew him, he was invited to our center and he took the invitation just like he would any other community-based organization in which he had the opportunity to talk to young people. Um, and he did. He came and spoke to the young people at our school, at our, at our center um, on more than one occasion. Um, if you know this as well, about three weeks before the election, uh, there was a, a, a premeditated attack on our organization, on some of the founders of our organization, um, and only, only because you know they are Palestinian and because they are, you know, prominent academics who have written extensively on the Palestinian cause, on the issue of the war in Iraq, on on U.S. foreign policy in general. And because it happened, they happened to live in Hyde Park, they happened to know the president-elect, automatically the situation was, this is guilt by association. A relationship that the president-elect Obama might have had with some Palestinians, essentially criminalizing the entire Palestinian community. How could you have a relationship with this academic who you know, criticizes Israel and sometimes criticizes U.S. foreign policy. Uh, that, in and of itself, was an, was an attack on an individual, Rashid Khaledi, who is now a, a very prominent professor at the UFC, and he's a prominent professor at Columbia University, now in New York, but it became an attack on the entire community, on any Arabs and any Palestinians. We saw at one of those town hall meetings, if you guys remember, the, uh, an, older, an elderly white woman who was at the McCain rally who said something like, well, I don't really trust him, and I'm summarizing here, I don't really trust him, he's an Arab. So McCain grabbed the mic, but it was interesting what he said. He didn't grab the mic and say, well, um, you know, He's, he, he grabbed the mic and he said, 
No, ma'am, he's not an Arab. No, ma'am, he's not an Arab. He's a, he's a family man. He's a good man. He's a, <laughs> we just have disagreements politically. Essentially, that means that Arabs are not family men, <laughs> that they're not good people. Um, you know, that was the response, and that's the, the, the Republican nominee. So that is just a, an example of how that kind of, those attacks, you could call it racism, institutionalized or structural, um, you could call it, you know, political machinations, you can call it whatever we, you want, but that's an example of how that permeated the entire campaign. So for Arabs, it was very difficult. We knew... I think in general, and if you ask the students here, the Arab students here and their families, I would venture to guess that 98 to 99% of Arabs voted for Obama. Um, because I think there's a clear understanding that we didn't want another four years of what we had just experienced. Possibly, and we've written about this before, possibly the, you know, the, the worst decade for Arabs in this country and Arabs in the Arab world uh, that we've ever experienced in in, uh, in recent history, and and nobody wanted m more of that. Um, now, does that mean that uh, that the president-elect is going to be much better than the previous administration when it comes to foreign policy issues, when it comes to the issue of Palestine, when it comes to the issue of the war in Iraq? Uh, when it comes to the issue of being an even-handed and honest broker in the conflict between Israel and the Arab world and Israel and Palestine, we're not really sure about that. Um, the very first hire that, that Obama made was uh, Rahm Emanuel, who is a, a, congress, a congressman in Chicago. Rahm Emanuel is um, a dual citizen of Israel and the United States, that in and of itself is not the issue. The issue is that he has been one of the loudest and most vocal voices um, as, in support of Israel and its policies. And that, right from the get-go, is not really such good news for Palestinians. Um, Emmanuel's father right after he was named chief of staff for the president-elect, was asked a question. And Emmanuel's father, just for a little context on that, he had been a member of a group called the Irgun. If folks know who that is, that was the, the Zionist pre-state of Israel, the Zionist militias that, um, that essentially terrorized Palestinian populations and were responsible for uh, for much of the exile when 750,000 of them were kicked out of Palestine in 1947 and 48. Anyway, he was asked, what does this mean um, that your son is now the main advisor for the president-elect? He's like, well, of course it means he's going to be more pro-Israel. Um, what do you expect? He's not an Arab. He's not going to be sweeping the floors of the White House. Um, he said that the very day that Rahm Emanuel was elected, was, was appointed chief of staff. 
the AAI, Fafma mentioned one of the organizations that we get our census information from, the Arab American Institute, uh, the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee, which is the, the most prominent civil rights organization in the United States for Arabs, immediately demanded a retraction, an apology, all that sort of thing. Emmanuel's father has not apologized or retracted his statement, but um, with all due respect, the uh, Emmanuel himself has put out a statement saying that he doesn't agree with his father and he, and he apologized for him saying that. Um, but, you know, there's, it's a difficult balance. We know that, you know, we, we uh, in general, Arabs voted for Obama because they understand that he, you know, um, that the previous administration uh, really wrecked havoc on this country economically and socially and politically. Um, but we're not so sure what's going to happen going forward in terms of the relationship between the U.S. and the Arab world because it's not an issue of individuals, it's an issue of, of broader policy. That was the short answer. <laughs> Any other questions or comments? I mean, the young people here, especially the young Arabs, I mean, you know as much about this sort of thing as we do. So if, uh, if you want to make a comment or add to the discussion, that'd be great. There is no question, so I think thanks everyone for at the, for, att for attending our discussion today, uh, and thank you for being here. And we just want to remind you tomorrow we have the Taste of Arabs that's going to be in the C building, 12 to 2, and you're more than welcome to join us. Thanks a lot. And I'm just going to say one last thing, as I mentioned earlier in the introduction, um, the the officers of the Arab Student Union have our information, our contact information. We're going to, at the very beginning of the year, either in uh, mid-January or early February, have another summit meeting between the different student organizations, Arab student organizations around the city, and we'd love for the ASU students to be involved in that. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library.